Mark My Words shares Mark Homer's contrarian views on investing, business, finance, economics, and all things money. Mark interviews the world's most successful business, finance, and money experts, as well as imparting his knowledge in a factual, direct, and no-nonsense manner. Welcome to Mark My Words, and here is your host, Mark Homer. Hello, Mark Homer here, and welcome to Mark My Words podcast. I'm going to run a Q&A today. We've got a series of questions that have come in through our community. Lots of people have sent things in that they want to know, and I'm going to fire away in no particular order, and I'm going to answer your questions. So Lee Lowe's has asked, how do you manage a work-life balance? Well, sometimes not that well. I think it's all about scheduling. So you need to put into your day, into your schedule, certain times for certain things. So let's say you've got a child like I have. Maybe that means you want to, you know, uh, be there for bath time. So that means you schedule in your diary. That happens every X time, every day or every few days or whatever before um, anybody else gets hold of your diary and starts entering things in. You've got exercise in the morning that gets scheduled in. These are immovable, unnegotiable items which go into your diary. Um, I'm quite um, sort of careful with my time. Um, y- you know, I, 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 if people are trying to sort of put stuff in my diary a long time out uh, and I feel like there are going to be too many things in my diary, I'm very careful um, not to always accept. Um, if I've got a meeting, I always put half an hour in before for travel time. I probably add half an hour to 45 minutes after I think the meeting's going to finish just for me to to get my thoughts, sort myself out um, before I've got another meeting. Um, And um, I tend to try and take actually more out of the day and and do less. So I'm less stressed um, and I I sort of get a a better time at home. Weekends, um, obviously, sometimes I'm I'm working, but most of the time I will be at home. and, um, you know, home for me now means being at home uh, rather than sort of charging around and, and uh, that gets scheduled in. Um, you know, I'll, 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 I'll make time for, for Gemma in there. Um, holidays, we always get sort of, I don't know, 10 days, two weeks. I, I tend to put those in a year ahead. I book them with Avios, um, with, with Air Miles. Um, so they're already in before everybody else starts sort of putting all their stuff in. So I can schedule, you know, sort of quality time away with with family, um, you know, at at sort of four times a year. Sharon Griffith says, how's life changed since being a dad? And does it feel like you thought it would? Um, Well, has life changed that much? Okay, so I'm at home all the time. Obviously, I'm at home sort of weekends. Um, Gemma is at home all the time as well. So obviously she's doing most of this. So in some ways I'm getting an easy ride. I have hired the services of a maternity nurse, which has made a massive difference because it it gives Gemma sort of three, four nights off a week. Um, She turned up last night. Uh, That that certainly makes a massive difference. Um, I, uh, you know, he's still very small. He's a month old. I think he can just about see me now. I think we sort of got a smile last weekend, but but not a lot more than that. Um, so I, I'm not really interacting with him yet. And I suspect um, that sort of stuff will come later. And that, you know, may sort of, uh, I don't know, I, I, I think that's maybe where things start to change. Um, 
So, yeah, does, does it feel like I thought it would? I, I suppose I didn't really know what it would feel like. Um, it certainly feels expensive and it feels like I've got a lot of responsibility. I've started re registering for a load of schools and looking at nurseries and um, obviously, you know, I'm cooking the dinner every night now and, you know, all, some of the stuff that, that Gemma used to do. Um, so it's still early days for me. So uh, maybe I'll sort of answer that one in six months time. Uh, Marion Mahmood says, uh, what's your advice about private landlords no longer being able to evict tenants at short notice without good reason under new plans? So um, the, the abolition of the Section 21 is still a consultation. Um, statute hasn't been changed. The bill hasn't been brought bef before Parliament yet. So the, the law is still the same. Um, it's going to go through this consultation. The government say they are going to consult on the Section 8 as well, which means that they're going to try and look at making eviction for non-payment of rent or other rental breaches like antisocial behaviour or not looking after the property easier and quicker. We'll see what they actually do and, and uh, you know, whether they actually sort of stick to their word on that one. We'll, 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 uh, we'll, we'll, we'll see whether they're true to their word. So I don't think this is done. Uh, I think we need to see what the um, response of the consultation is when the government issue it. Uh, so we can see what the, the new rules actually are. And if they're going to fa fast track the Section 8 through the court system, we need to see in practice how that operates. So uh, there may not be a massive change. Um, does it bother me that I can't just evict tenants because um, I just because I feel like it? Well, no, as long as I can evict them it, because they're not paying rent or because they've damaged the property or critically, and this is in the consultation, the government say that they're probably going to let you evict tenants if you're going to, if you need to sell the property or if you're going to move back in. Um, and that needs to be concrete. There needs to be evidence of that. So we'll see. Um, we'll see how that sort of works moving forward. Um, but on the face of it, maybe not a major change, but the devil's always in the detail on these things. So all will be revealed. I'm not sure I know how to pronounce that. Um, uh, Berengeri? Berengeri? Uh, Geary? Um, how did you get your system systemized in place and how long did it take? Well, um, I've been doing this for about 15 years, so it's a constantly evolving process. So it's probably taken me 15 years. Um, I started with Excel spreadsheets. I still use a lot of Excel spreadsheets. We run um, CFP Winman to manage the properties. Um, so that's for the rental management, checking the rents coming in, checking the gas safety checks, making sure we've done electrical safety checks, making sure there's a license. All that stuff is on there. We had a system called PIM built, which is P-I-M-M. -M. It's based around access. Uh, we had a programmer come in and design that for our property portfolio. Um, and that sort of works out whether a deal is a deal and works out what properties we're buying and how we're buying them. So that is a, a you know, a, a bespoke system. Um, we have a lot of other systems in-house like Infusionsoft, which manages our marketing and, you know, our contacts and all the emails and all the, the, the sort of credit card um, processing and, and charging that goes behind that. Um, and, you know, I, I have sort of little sort of systems which I have very simple ones often they're paper-based um, which just it does various checks I, I do a three-monthly check on all the properties I take my sort of RHI um, uh, reading off boilers so I can sort of price the RHI 
um, and, and get paid for that. Um, I, I go around, I, I do an inspection myself, take photos, and then I store those in a certain place every, every three months. Um, I'm usually taking meter readings, they're held in a certain place, my, my PA organises those for me. So, but loads of this sort of stuff, um, which I'm constantly updating, which helps me very quickly look at management information or, or management accounts. Um, or you know rental levels or voids or, or whatever to tell me how portfolio is performing. Ben Chapman, Ferrari or Lamborghini? Ah, right. Well, this very much depends on which Ferrari or Lamborghini. Um, we had a Ferrari 430, then we had a Ferrari 458. The difference is night and day. Um, our 430 was a bit shit. Um, <laughs> the gearbox was knackered. Um, you know, and, and it had done a few miles um, and I just found it hard work. Maybe I didn't put the right tyres on it. I had an M3 at the time. I could drive my M3 way quicker. I, I just felt like it had more grip um, and responded better. Then we got a, a 458 and that was amazing. Um, That's probably the best car I've ever owned. Um, that 458 it had an automatic roof. Um, the engine was awesome. The gearbox was awesome. It sounded great. I just love nailing it on the paddles in race mode. Um, so yeah, that was a great car. It was very red when you sort of turned up, everyone stared at you, which wasn't always great. Uh, I got lots of sort of V signs in that. Uh, and now we've got a Lamborghini Aventador, um, which is louder, sounds better. Uh, and I think it probably looks better than a 458. Um, but there are drawbacks. Um, it is very wide, which obviously makes it look good, uh, but you've got to get through and round certain things. And I've already sort of clipped wheels, Rob's clipped wheels, and, you know, we've had sort of various issues because of the width. Uh, it's very low, but there is a lift on the front, um, so you can get over things with that. Um, and I'd say the biggest thing is the roof. The roof is, is manual. It comes off in two parts. Um, it's carbon fibre. It stores in the front. Um, and that's a bit of a game, taking that off and putting that back on. And obviously the visibility uh, anyway is much reduced on that car versus the Ferrari. And I'd say one of the biggest things in is, is it's got a single clutch gearbox, uh, which often can't make up its mind uh, which gear it's going to engage. So there's always a, uh, well not always, but it, depending on what you're doing, there's a big lag when it changes gear and then a ooh, ooh, ooh. Um, which is not always great. I like double clutch gearboxes. Uh, I think they're awesome. Uh, but obviously the Lambo's a lot quicker, sounds a lot better. Um, and yeah, when you drive it really fast in Corsa mode, which is like Ferrari's race mode, you feel amazing. Uh, so yeah, that's a, it is a, a very cool car, not for daily use. Andrew Belcher, what can I do to become your protege? Well, what can you do to become my protege? Um, I don't know, Andrew. Go and find me uh, a building or some land for a great, great price that I can put 200, 250 flats on uh, around sort of Peterborough or East Midlands. Um, bring that deal to me uh, and then we can do it together and we can learn together. Callum Stevens, your thoughts on how to remove deal with problem tenants in HMOs now section 21 is going well. <laughs> so um, 
I mentioned earlier you can still use the section 8, um, but this is slightly unconventional, but I have had HMOs where you've, you know, you've got a very difficult tenant and they upset everybody else and everyone else wants to leave. Um, and um, we've ended up with a property where it's been pretty much empty and we, you know, just because of one individual. Um, and I moved a load of Polish builders in with their, and you know, they're all instructed early morning, 6 a.m. Uh, they get up in their pants, uh, they'd be listening to Polish folk music, uh, cooking smelly Polish broth, um, and just generally being objectionable uh, around the house. Obviously, they were, you know, working on a, on a site that we were operating, uh, and said individual who'd not paid their rent for a long time, upset all the other tenants, and was just generally objectionable, and um, one of life's... Uh, less desirables, uh, decided to leave because the, 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 the Polish made their life so difficult. Um, not illegal. Uh, it's a HMO. Um, the other tenants have, have got access to the rest of the property. Uh, you can't cut the water off. You can't cut the electricity off. But you can move builders in. Uh, and uh, they are allowed to use the communal areas. Uh, and if they want to play music uh, and they want to cook smelly food, and they want to jump up and down and, you know, sort of uh, shout Nostravia and all this sort of stuff, um, then, you know, may maybe we're not that effective at, at dealing with those complaints. Don Mangles, what's your favourite cheese? I don't know if that's a serious question, um, but, yeah, what is my favourite cheese? Probably halloumi, grilled on the barbecue like I had on Sunday afternoon. Fred Upton, what's the best strategy or investment to make outside property? Hmm, I don't know because I'm I'm very uh, sort of property centric and I'm I'm very biased. Um, I invest. Look, you always need some hedge. I always do my ISA every year. I invest the full ISA amount. I usually put it into Hargreaves Lansdowne. I normally. If you love to travel like me and you understand the power in escaping the money for time exchange trap, but you just don't know how to do it, then building an Airbnb consultancy business could be exactly what you have been looking for. Right now in the UK, there is a completely untapped opportunity through helping struggling Airbnb hosts by turning around their underperforming properties and generating you huge commission payments in the process. We are going to teach you all of the tools and all of the techniques that we've learned over the last five years through building our very own multiple six-figure Airbnb business, arming you with everything that you need to swoop in and save the day. Minimal startup costs, zero risk, and almost unlimited potential. Sound good? Welcome to the Airbnb Consultant. Contact us through any of the channels included in the studio notes to get the conversation started. put it into tracker funds in the often you know a spread but mainly UK sort of FTSE a little bit of international maybe emerging markets and excuse me some some American trackers as well they're very very low cost I don't think most fund managers outperform the trackers so over the long term uh, I like that investment strategy you don't pay any tax on it if it's in an ISA um, maybe you make six, seven, eight, nine percent a year over the long term, so it's nowhere near as good as property. It's usually not leveraged, um, but yeah, that's what I'd I'd mainly do. 
Obviously, sort of watches can be good, but you need to know what you're doing. You need a Rob Moore to tell you what to buy and when to buy it and where to buy it from. Uh, gold, gold's all right. Probably doesn't go up that much, you know, and there's no income stream. Um, gold's good when the wheels start coming off and the economy starts doing badly. You'll find gold will shoot up. But then in the more normal times like now, gold will just go nowhere um, for a lot of years. So probably not so good. Wine, wine, you know, had a good run, but um, that's normally what happens. Something has a good run and then the next few years it doesn't. Um, big issue with wine is if it's not stored at the right temperature or there's too much sunlight or whatever, it goes bad. Uh, and if you've got tens of thousands of pounds in bottles of wine uh, and you suddenly find your refrigerators have gone down or, you know, maybe, maybe there's been a flood or something like that, you can lose loads and loads of money um, if you don't store it correctly. Um, so I'm not that keen on that. Um, there's loads of other sort of alternative investments. Um, RHI is still there, putting sort of biomass boilers in or feed-in tariff from solar panels. It's not as good, but it can still work. Um, and there are lots of other similar types of investment. Chris Naylor, has your son brought his first commercial conversion yet? Surprisingly enough, Chris, no, he's a month old. Uh, but I will be getting him involved. I'm going to take him around all the sites. I'm going to get him involved in all the numbers. Um, I, uh, I was reading him a little book at the weekend um, and uh, singing, singing him the wheels on the bus go round and round. Um, so we're not quite on to sort of the, the finer nuances of uh, creating the right steel superstructure uh, beneath uh, a, a, new, uh, a new sort of property development. Um, but um, I'm going to... I'm gonna, I'm going to get him involved. Ricky Malone, would you, Progressive, be, you, Stroke Progressive, be interested in publishing software, uh, seeing as you and Progressive publish books? It's not top of my list, Ricky. Um, obviously, I like to focus on, you know, a few things and do them well rather than sort of try and do a load of new stuff and not do it very well. Um, so... No, that's not really of interest to me. Um, and I think, you know, we'd probably be more successful and make more money focusing on what we know and what we're doing. William Corbett, does being a millionaire change you? I think that just depends who you are. Uh, and it probably depends how many millions you've got. Uh, because one million, well, a lot of people just become a millionaire through owning their own home. Um, so... Uh, it probably accentuates people, doesn't it? it accentuates their, their features, good and bad. Um, you know, if people have got more money, they can buy more stuff. If they were a, a bit of a pillock beforehand, then I would have thought that having lots of money will make them an even bigger pillock. Uh, it just magnifies, um, you know, their qualities. Uh, but, um, you know, if you've got lots of money uh, and you're a really good person and maybe you're quite charitable, maybe you'll be an even better person to give more away and help more people. Um, so, yeah, I think it, it, it sort of magnifies people's qualities. Um, it probably makes life a bit easier. Um, you know, you, you less challenges around money, less challenges around sort of meeting the bills, so you, you can spend your time doing things you want to do. It gives you choice, um, and it, it gives you the, the freedom every day to choose what you want to do and to be able to say no to things and no to people and being around certain people. Um, so all of that's pretty, pretty powerful. Justine Kirkham, 
How do you overcome procrastination fear for a big deal? I think that comes through experience, working up in stages, Justine, getting going, just, just sort of jumping in on the first deal uh, and you know get, getting rolling with the early deals, um, getting the numbers out of them, analyzing the numbers, using those into the next deal, and then sort of, so you're testing and measuring all along, all, all along the way. And I think that removes the, the sort of procrastination and, and fear. Um, you know, the more sort of data you get from the numbers, uh, the more I think you end up um, with on, you know, the more you end up with, yeah, sort of making these things work. So I think, yeah, I think fear disappears with knowledge because risk reduces with knowledge uh, and knowledge comes from experience and doing it and you know just starting with a small single let maybe moving on to a hmo or a service accommodation and then going to a small conversion commercial conversion then maybe doing a bigger one and then you know you're doing an even bigger one and making work maybe working with other people like project managers and professionals who have done bigger projects eases you into bigger and bigger deals John Spared, have you bought shares in Boeing? Um, I haven't, John, um, but I see where you're going with that. I haven't even looked at Boeing's share price. Uh, I suspect it's gone down a lot. Uh, any idea how much, Harry? Yeah, it's gone down quite a lot. Yeah. yeah, I'm going to look at that as soon as I've finished in here, John, because, um, yeah, I, I think, I mean, Boeing, it's blatantly a good company. Um, they've got great products. Um, we all use them. If you look at sort of all the orders versus Airbus, I think they still, even on the 737, maybe not since the Max 8 crashed, but just prior to that, uh, their order book was bigger than the A320. Um, if you look at wide body jets, 777 definitely um, outperforms, um, definitely outperform the A340. Um, obviously, there's the A350, which Airbus have got now. Uh, but if you, I bet if you take the 787 and the 777, those order books will be much bigger than Airbus's A350 and definitely way bigger than the A380 because that's got four engines and is not particularly um, efficient and they're going to stop producing it. Um, so, yeah, have a look at the Chinese stuff that's coming out. Obviously, I, I saw a new one that they were just releasing a couple of weeks ago. It's been absolutely panned by... Um, a lot of the airline analysts be, as being sort of very old and already outdated. Um, another Russian plane, the Sukhoi, crashed a couple of days ago. Um, you don't need to know too much more about that. Maybe in the future the Chinese stuff will, will be good. I'm sure it will be. The Russian stuff, well, who knows if they'll ever get their act together. Um, but, um, yeah, Boeing, are they going to be here? Are they going to be making great planes? Um are they and Airbus the two leaders? Absolutely. Um, so the next question comes down to, um, and, and actually you may have watched over the weekend, Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger um, did their annual general meeting for Berkshire Hathaway. And, um, you know, those two guys, God, they've got to be the best investors in the world. Um, $125 billion in cash as, as float, just waiting for the sort of next opportunity. Uh, in Berkshire Hathaway, um, and he was asked about Boeing actually, and uh, Charlie just thought it was quite overdone. Uh, thought it was a great company, um, and thought they'd they'd fix this and and move on, um, which would be my view. So the next thing is, does do their do their shares 
represent uh, fair market value. Uh, so I suppose you're going to have to, a little bit like Warren, spend hours and hours and hours reading their company accounts uh, and probably reading Airbuses and uh, maybe sort of Bombardier and some of the other competition uh, and working out, you know, what the market capitalization is uh, versus their order book versus what their profits are versus all of those sort of challenges which may be coming over the horizon and, and, and you know, sort of interest rate, all that sort of stuff, and, and maybe work out what you think the fair value is for the shares, um, which is what you need to do with sort of any share purchase. Um, but, um, yeah, I think you're going down a, a good road there. Um, I like stuff like that, a bit like, bit like VW, when they got smashed with their um, emission scandal. I didn't buy in, but a couple of my friends did. They did really well. Uh, BP was another one when they were spilling all that oil into the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, great company. Clearly, it was unquantifiable exactly what the losses were going to be. But, you know, when the media smashes it, you know, and you see them on the, on the news every day, often you get lots of these shareholders who just press sell and ask questions later, especially the smaller investors, you know, you you got them at home, they, do, they don't want to be worried by this sort of stuff. So often the, the reaction and the correction in the share values is greater because of the public relations issue uh, that, that comes from it. It's greater than it needs to be. Um, so the shares drop faller, uh, sorry, the shares fall further um, and, you know, get, give, it, give it time. The Max 8 will get sorted, obviously. The airlines that have got it, they'll probably... Um, you know, they'll probably put a lot of information out and I would have thought certainly the Western Airlines and the ones that can't get out of it will continue with it uh, and, and they'll sort it. I don't know if they, they bring an update out. It wouldn't be the first time this has happened to Boeing. Um, you know, McDonnell Douglas had big problems with the DC-10. Um, obviously huge problems with the Comet. Um, much bigger than these problems, I think. Um, uh, you know, triple sevens of well seven eight sevens got bigger issues doesn't it with um with its engines loads have had to be grounded obviously people haven't died but they had loads of battery problems and loads of engine problems um so i don't think this is a new thing um no engines on a380s have, have exploded it's just that lots of people have died on two planes that's the issue george king what do you think about the new diesel tax is it still worth buying a diesel car in 2019-2020? So I'm not sure what diesel tax you're referring to, George. Um, I've noticed that some London boroughs are charging more for you to go into those areas if you've got a diesel. Well, if you don't drive in there, probably doesn't affect you that much. I know some other towns are talking about doing that, but, you know, are they talking about that in Peterborough? No. Uh, has my wife recently just got a new diesel? Yes. Um, so that should probably tell you what I think. Will car tax on diesels go up? Yes, probably a bit. I think it already has done a bit. Um, but, you know, are the, are the new prices and cost to lease and maybe use values of diesels, have they reacted accordingly? Yeah, I think they have. Um, so is it still worth buying a diesel? Probably, yeah. Um, it's all about the deal you get. So I'll just offset these probably relatively small risks uh, against the comparatively better deal that you managed to obtain on diesel um, and, and sort of work it out from there. Yeah, you could go electric. I think the capital cost, the outlay, the, the, the purchase price of the car will be much higher on electric. 
I've done a lot of spreadsheets, worked out the full cost over two or three years. Often it doesn't work uh, compared to a, a sort of nice diesel or petrol. Don't discount petrol. Uh, they are way more efficient than they used to be. Uh, petrol is usually cheaper than diesel, the, the, the actual fuel. Um, so, so, you know, that, that, that should be better. And um, actually a lot of, lot of cars and four-wheel drives are petrol now uh, because they are that much more efficient. I'd put all the costs on a spreadsheet. You'd probably be quite um, surprised. This whole diesel thing's probably being overdone. Um, 2040, they're supposed to be banned, new diesels. They're talking about bringing that back to 2030. Um, is that going to affect your diesel now? Probably not because we're only talking about new cars. Um, you know, it's going to be a lot of years until the, the petrol stations go. Lots of people are still going to be driving petrol and diesel. Uh, but over the sort of medium term, long term, then obviously we move to electric. Isabella Shaw, if you were stranded on desert islands, what three things would you bring? Ah, stranded on a desert island. So obviously this depends how long you're going to be on the desert island for. Um, and yes, but what three things? Okay, the first thing I would bring would probably be a satellite telephone because a satellite telephone should work anywhere on Earth, except maybe North Korea. Um, you'll be able to connect to the nearest satellite and call for help. Therefore, you'll probably get picked up. They'll probably send somebody to come and get you. Um, and I, I would like to specify that a satellite phone has five spare batteries which are fully charged. Um, so that's number one. Um, number two would probably be some form of food source. Um, now, if you can only have one thing, it sounds a bit gruesome, but that may need to be a knife um, so that you can kill small marsupials and mammals on the island so that you can eat. Um, and obviously break open coconuts and, you know, maybe chop some bananas down and all that sort of stuff. Quite important, you need to be able to eat. Um, and I think the third thing would be desalination tablets or, or a, some sort of filtration system um, so that I could take water out of the sea, put the water through the filter or desalination system and drink it. Um, I think they're the three things I'd want. Clearly shelter might be nice, but if it's a desert island, it's probably quite warm already. Um, so it's more about getting in the shade, getting under a tree at night. I've got my knife to protect myself against the, um, you know, against any, I don't know, snakes and things like that. Uh, I suppose a gun might be nice, but then a gun's not going to help you sort of break coconut, coconuts open and, and, and chop bananas down. So yeah, they're the three things. Sasha Atkinson, are you and Rob feeling the effects of the attack on landlords by the government? Yes, I feel victimized. I feel discriminated against. I feel like a minority. Um, and um, yeah, it's pretty unfair, isn't it? We, in this political world that we live in, um, 
or, or not so much world, but country, where you're not allowed to sort of say anything to anybody else that might upset or offend them, um, whether it's based on age or based on, I don't know, the, you know, whatever it is, disabilities or, you know, well, whatever it is. Um, why is it that, you know, all, all, all these other people you, you can't sort of say anything to, but um, landlords are actively discriminated against um, in that if you buy a property in your own name versus uh, buy it in a corporate entity, uh, you know, these big funds or big property funds or REITs or whatever buy in, in limited companies, why is it that they pay less tax? That, that feels like absolute discrimination. Um, why is it that landlords are discriminated against in terms of, um, you know, Section 21 or, you know, all these other sort of rights which tenants are getting over landlords? Um, doesn't, say, doesn't feel or doesn't seem fair. So that's sort of on the, I don't know, emotional side. In a practical sense, well, most of this stuff's fixable. Uh, you buy in a limited company, you're back to pretty much the same position. Um, you can still evict people with a, a Section 8 or will be able to. Uh, we need to see what the new rules are. Um, smoke detector, checking that they're in the property, you know, and including that in the inspection report. Well, you probably should have been doing that anyway. We were. Um, so that's now a legal requirement. Electrical safety certificate, um, that wasn't a legal requirement, but will be. Well, maybe you should be doing that anyway. Um, what else? Uh, stamp duty, I don't pay it anymore because I don't usually buy individual properties. I just buy commercial buildings and convert them, so it hasn't really affected me. But yeah, it's annoying to smaller landlords uh, and pretty unfair. And government <laughs> stamp duty receipts have reduced by about a billion pounds off the back of this, um, so it doesn't help them either. Um, so sound feels pretty ridiculous. Um, so a lot of this stuff is sortable. It's an, it's annoying. Obviously, there's more administration. Um, our sort of managing our letting agency that we own now has to be regulated, um, you know, and, and sort of answerable to various regulatory bodies, which causes a lot more complication for them. Uh, but as a result, rents are rising. Um, rents are rising at an abnormal rate, uh, if you look at the last sort of 10, 15 years, because there are less landlords, less properties to rent. Um, and so who's paying for all this? The tenant. Um, so I'm not really sure. I, you know what, with government, I, I just, somebody said this to me the other day, and I think, I think there's some truth in it. I think they've worked out that there are more and more tenants in constituencies and swing swing sort of wards and constituencies um, that the government and Labour feel like they can target with sort of tenant happy on the face of it laws like tenant friendly laws like what, what I've just mentioned. Um, it will get them support. Labour usually dream this stuff up and then two weeks later the Conservatives go, oh, what a good idea. We'll issue a consultation on that and they nick it. Um, but the reality is uh, every time, you know, the government do this and every, everyone, including a lot of tenants, go, yeah, how great. Let's go and get those those bastard landlords. And it in the long term puts the rent up, which actually harms the very people that they were supposedly trying to get votes from. Um, you know, who, who support this. So um, I don't think they're doing them any favours. Um, 
yeah, fine with the some of the standards and licensing and things like that. That that needs to happen anyway. And if if you're running your portfolio the right way, then it shouldn't affect you too much. Uh, but with the extra taxes, the tenants are paying the price. Um, so I think the government knew that that was going to be the case, and I don't think they really care. I think all they want is to get into power, get votes, uh, probably raise money for HMRC or the Treasury. Um, but obviously, stamp duty increases have not done that. Sasha also asks, have, are you meeting with other established property investors to come up with a voice big enough to challenge them? I've already done that, Sasha, many times. Um, I have a consult. I have a, um, a petition running on the parliamentary website. I've got over 15,000 signatures. My memory serves me correctly. Um, on that to re reduce stamp duty and re remove the 3% surcharge and remove section 24. That's been running for quite a while. Um, I speak, um, you, you know, I, I, I get newspapers coming to me every week. In fact, just bef be before I started this podcast, um, I did a piece for The Sun on stamp duty and on reliefs that should be introduced for um, people who are downsizing and people who are buying uh, second homes, uh, you know, which, which should help people who are families who are getting bigger houses and, and, and moving up the chain. Um, I spoke to The Telegraph last week um, um, and I've, I've constantly got stuff coming out in the FT or, or, or The Times or diff different places on these sorts of issues. Um, so yes, I do that quite a lot. Um, I have, um, there's a new political party called Renew uh, who have now joined with Change UK. Um, they're in Peterborough today. Um, I've sort of engaged with them a, a little bit. I found them uh, some retail premises and hopefully they're going to take those. And um, I have also linked, um, they're, they're trying to get some signatures for their new sort of candidate. So I've, I've sort of been helping them. And uh, alongside it, I've been mentioning a lot of these issues and uh, they've been very supportive. Um, and... Um, yeah. So, yes, I feel like I'm doing my bit both politically uh, in, a, in a PR sense with the papers uh, and launching petitions and, and, and speaking to lots of other investors to try and get them on board. Mike Hunt, what's your least, uh, what's your most favourite and least favourite trait about Rob? Oh, here we go. Uh, oh, dear. Uh, I wonder if you'll listen to this podcast. Um, What's my, okay, so my most favorite trait about Rob is his brilliant ability to uh, sort of engage with people, you know, through various mediums and dream up new marketing uh, strategies, whether it's through podcasts, social media, you know, obviously he mastered all the email marketing. He'll engage with people, he'll get on stage and he will push the profile of himself and this company um, constantly. Um, which is clearly to the benefit of all of us within this community. Uh, my least favourite trait is some of the things that he might do to, 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 to do that, to achieve that goal. Um, clearly, Rob is, um, you know, very, very outgoing uh, and uh, enjoys, uh, you know, I think outside one year he made me stand there with two buckets of ice cold water, we did a video, 
he poured one over me, I poured one over him, it got everybody looking, it got everybody talking, um, but I didn't really appreciate him for that, uh, for that one. What else has he done? Uh, he took our 458 and he smashed it, that Ferrari I mentioned earlier, he smashed it into the, the News International building, uh, the Sun newspaper, um, was on the doorstep by 3pm, uh, and followed by the Daily Mail, uh, he did £110,000 worth of damage, um, and clearly he got us two more sort of uh, newspaper stories, but um, I've heard about those ever since. Um, and in the sort of property circles and agents and banks that I deal with, I'm not sure they appreciate it, even though Rob loves to sort of push that stuff and, and feels like it's all marketing. Um, so I hope that answers your question, Mike. Zach uh, Mustafa says, what would you say is the most important trait for a property investor to have? Tenaciousness is the most important, you know, sort of trait, I think, in property and in business. Um, I think not giving up, being tenacious, keep going, keep on driving, incrementally improving. I think they are the most important qualities for any sort of property investor or business owner. And what's the one trait you'd attribute most of your success to? I think the first one, I, you know, when I fail and when I make mistakes and when I don't get things right, which happens all the time, I keep on going uh, and I don't give up. And, yeah, I, you know, it's important to understand the numbers and to be, you know, reasonably analytical, but have that in the background, you know, do some broad numbers on all that sort of stuff uh, and then keep on, keep on rolling. Teresa Green, if there was a movie made about you, who would play you? Oh, wow. Um, God, this could be a bit embarrassing, couldn't it? Uh, well, who would... Hmm, I, I don't really know. Um, uh, Tom Cruise is pretty cool. He's done some cool stuff. Uh, he's, I, love, I love flying. Um, I haven't done much this summer because of Freddie, but... Um, I love getting in the helicopter and I love just burning around and landing in places and just, just, just thinking I'm a commercial airline pilot. You know, I get on the radio, I talk to East Midlands Air Traffic Control. You know, I, I love go, going through sort of, I don't know, um, Blackbush or, or maybe getting on Farnborough Lars and all that sort of stuff and firing off my call sign. Uh, I enjoy doing all of that um, and picking people up in fields and, and just generally being a pilot um, and Tom Cruise seems to like doing that um, and uh, in his sort of most recent Mission Impossible film he got in a helicopter he did his own stunts in a single squirrel which I just thought was awesome uh, he learned to fly um, very very quickly uh, he got up to you know commercial airline uh, sorry uh, he got his he was commercially rated on a on a, a rotary on a helicopter um, and um, yeah, he did all his own stunts and he was just flying this single squirrel around uh, at high speed in between sort of canyons and rocks and mountains and all this sort of stuff. So, yeah, I think that's really cool. So Tom Cruise is cool. I also love Top Gun as well. That's my favourite movie of all time. And apparently the sequel is coming out and it's called Maverick. Last question. Glenn Delve. <laughs> when are we next having lunch? Um, yeah. Uh, I reckon that's probably at the 10x super conference, Glenn. Um, so obviously you're there, you're speaking. Um, I 
Looking forward to seeing all of you guys there as well. Uh, this wasn't a planted question, um, but clearly we've got, uh, we're flying in a very big speaker with a portfolio of nearly a billion B, bravo, billion pounds, Grant Cardone. Um, and we're going to have over something like 1,200 plus people in the room networking and talking property. So um, I suspect we'll have lunch then, Glenn. That has been Mark Homer for Mark My Words. I hope you got a lot of value out of this podcast.